Thank you for listening to the Shanghai Community Fellowship Podcast. To find out more about the SCF community, listen to sermons, and upcoming events, visit us at shanghaifellowship.org. Hi, and welcome everybody to the SCF online teaching ministry. And today we are giving a part two uh, of a two-part series called In the World But Not of the World. And as we said last week, um, and you'll have to go back and see the part one if you missed that, but uh, this kind of builds on that. But again, like usually I do in these series, uh, I try to make it so that each one can stand alone. But uh, we uh, introduced that phrase, in the world but not of the world. Christians are in the world but not of the world. And perhaps you've never heard that phrase before, or maybe, like me, it's a very familiar one. And as I said, again, last week, that um, I, I knew that was, I was fairly sure that was in the Bible, but uh, I wasn't sure where, and I, I was also confident that it was something Paul must have said uh, or wrote. But uh, it turns out it is not something Paul wrote, it's something Jesus said. And it's, it's something that he doesn't say straight away. Jesus doesn't say, my followers or my disciples are in the world, but not of the world, and, and in that form. He does basically say that during his prayer in John chapter 17. So our text for last week and this week is the same text. It's John chapter 17, verses 13 to 19, but, but really to get the context, you're going, to really want, you're going to want to look at the entire prayer, all of John chapter 17, you know, from start to finish. The entire chapter is Jesus' prayer. Uh, and I'm focused just on this section of it. Um, and, and Jesus is praying, as, I, as we said, be in and for his disciples. Of course, at the beginning of this prayer, he's praying about himself. He's praying about his relationship uh, with his Father, Father God. And, and there's so much about, especially those first, what, nine, thir- 13 verses that um, really capture almost like a summary of Jesus's mission and ministry. Uh, just in those those 13 verses, those first 13 verses. So you want to go back and see that. And then from there, he shifts into praying, primarily focusing in on the, on the disciples that are with him there that night. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. But, but the fact that Jesus prayed out loud and that his prayer was written down tells us that this was not just a prayer for those who were with him on that night, but it's really a prayer for all of us who are following Jesus in every, in every generation. Um, and so I want to come back to the actual part of the prayer that we quoted and uses our text for last week and this week, and that's in verses 13 to 19. Jesus prayed, I am coming to you now, and of course there he's referring to his heavenly Father, Father God, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, that is my disciples who are, and Jesus would say, we're with me right now, but really any, any disciple of Jesus in any generation, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you have taken them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of, it, of, of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For, I, for them, I sanctify myself 
that they may too be truly sanctified. Now you can see from the language of of these of, of this part of Jesus's prayer about being sent into the world, but they are not of the world, you know, and that uh, it, you you can see obviously I think where the phrase that Jesus's disciples. Uh, Christians are not are, are in the world, but they are not of the world in the same way that Jesus was in the world, uh, but not of the world. And we talked some about that last week. We do a little bit of a recap summary uh, right now. But um, Jesus did not belong to the world uh, and neither will we uh, as we belong to him. It means that we really no no longer belong to the world. Jesus tells them that like him, they do know they do not belong to the world, although they are in the world, right? Um, and and Jesus understands, and 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 you see that in the prayer as well. It's, it's kind of there uh, woven into the prayer that Jesus understands what it's like to be in the world. He was not of this world, but he made himself to be in this world. We call that the incarnation, and we celebrate that at Christmas every year that Jesus made himself to be in this world but never really becoming of this world, of the stuff of this world. Say about, we'll say more about that in just a few minutes. Never really becoming of this world, of the stuff of this world. And, and uh, like Jesus, they, well, unlike Jesus, they didn't, their starting place was not, uh, not of this world, uh, like Jesus would have been. You know, you and I, as humans, uh, born here and born and raised here, as they say, we are, we are of this world. That's how we start out. We are of this world. And then Jesus takes us out of the world, in a sense, right? He takes us out of the world and into his kingdom, and then he puts us in the world, no longer of it. We're, this is what we're going to be unpacking into yesterday and today's message in this entire series. Being in the world, we experience both the good and the bad of it, right? It rains on both the good and the bad, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, being in the world, for example, we might know what it's like to be to, for, to be turned down for a promotion when someone else who is less qualified um, but has better connections uh, gets the promotion. As an example, that's what it can be like uh, when we are in the world. Um, being in the world is, is uh, like what you see in the parable of the prodigal son, not the younger brother, the prodigal brother who uh, takes the inheritance and spends it wildly and then um, shame, you know, shame all over him. He comes back to the father's house and uh, he's welcomed by the father. He receives grace from his father. He's offered grace and he receives grace from his father, right? And that's the one son. But there's an older brother. There's another son in the house. Now, the parable of the prodigal son is often called the parable of the gracious father because in this story, Jesus, or Jesus is telling about a gracious, gracious father like our God who is full of grace, amazing grace, and in one sense and in one particular way, he shows grace to that younger son. When, after you know, having spent his portion of the inheritance, brought shame upon the entire house and run everything down to the very bottom, uh, he is welcomed back as a son. And the father is just showing to the son amazing grace. But the other half, if you will, the other major part of that parable there's a prodigal son, there's a gracious father, a very generous father, but there's also an older son uh, who is also being extended uh, grace. 
not just in the moment that he hears that his younger brother has returned, there's a huge celebration going on, the older younger brother was lost, now he's home, and, and, uh, and it's not just that, but the father is saying to his older son, you know, son, I have been, I have been showing you grace all along. And the younger son said, you know, I, I've been laboring, slaving for you, working for you. I've never done what this younger uh, son of yours has done. And, and, and you throw a big party for him, and you, you celebrate him, you know, and the father is saying to, to him, reminding him that you have been living in, in, in an abundance of grace, and you're not seeing it. And I'm extending grace to you even now. And, and in this story, it ends without us knowing as the readers or hearers originally, what does the son do? Does he receive the father's grace? Does he come into the celebration? And my point in telling this story is because this is a story of what it's like to live in the world. When we live in the world, we live in these kinds of situations, and we live with these kind of people, people who cannot receive grace or will not receive grace. They just refuse to receive grace. And furthermore, they're going to do everything they can to ruin it for the person who is abundantly receiving grace. They don't want to join your celebration. In fact, they want to ruin your celebration. And living in the world, in the world, as Jesus described it, is living with people just like this. And we can give example after example after example. As we said last week, when John talks about the world in this sense, he's talking about the arena of unbelief. He's talk about, talking about the arena of resisting God and his ways uh, and his lordship over their lives and over the, over the world itself. And and this is the world that Jesus said, as my followers, and now that you're in my kingdom, you no longer belong to this world, although you continue to live in this world. He also could have described in this world, you will find people or a person of peace. So I want to just give all bad news, just gloomy, you know, it's bad, it's, it's, it's generally uh, not a good place in this world because it's a world in rebellion against God who is the maker of this world. But you're also going to find Jesus talked about a man or person of peace in Luke chapter 10, verse 6. So you're going to find people in this world who have a heart for the things of God, for the gospel itself, but yet maybe don't believe it, are not, particular, are, not, are not really following it, but yet have a peace towards you as a follower of Jesus, also in this world. The point Jesus is making is this, that there is a lot of tension now. There is a lot of tension in the world with us who are following him because we are not of the same stuff of the world. The stuff that we are made of is not the stuff of the world that we're describing. It's the stuff of the kingdom. We have a different way of looking at things. We have a different worldview altogether. We are following a different leader. We are new citizens of a different country, but living in the old country. It's kind of like having that expat experience of going back to your home country. I'm now in my country where I hold citizenship, but I have been living outside of the country. It's changed me. I'm not the same person. Now I'm living in my birth country, and I should belong here, but I don't. 
the expat experience actually is a good metaphor for what we're experiencing. It can be, it can be awkward, it can be frustrating, and as Jesus is pointing out here, it can even be hostile. Think about what Jesus is saying to these disciples. In the Gospel of John in particular, these men and these followers of Jesus, there's probably at least 120 or more of them, they already know what it, what it means to pay a price for following Jesus. The same hostility, the same anger, resentment, um, and murderous threats that Jesus has been experiencing. Um, and all he's been doing is delivering the word of life and healing the sick and doing the miracles and, and setting the captives free. And yet people resent him. In the world, they resent him. They're not always happy to receive the light. They'd rather remain in the darkness. And Jesus' followers are very much aware of this. They're already having that same response spilling over onto them. This is why Jesus is praying. By the way, this is why he's praying on the night before he's crucified. He knows what it's going to be like to follow him. There's going to be joy. There's going to be miracles. There's going to be healings. There's going to be deliverance. There's going to be comfort. And there's going to be all these awesome things. But there's also going to be hostility. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be rejection. And so Jesus prays for us as we follow him in a world that we no longer belong to. And in his prayer, he's acting on the person. Like he's, he's going to be the answer to his own prayer, right? Uh, maybe, maybe you've experienced that. You know, you're, you're praying along, but you realize, you know what, I could actually get off my knees right now uh, as soon as I'm done praying with this, and I can actually go answer this prayer, all right, in, in, the best, in the best sense. Jesus is going to act on his own prayer, and what he's going to do as he prays for the well-being of his followers the well-being of you and me uh, and all of us who follow Jesus, that he is going to do something in response to that prayer. And what he's going to do and what he has been doing is he is going to bring us to the Father. One of the major reasons why Jesus came, one of the major things that Jesus accomplished when he was here was that having been with the Father from, the, from, from all eternity, he has come to us, to all of humanity, to show us what it is and what it means to be with the Father, and then make a way for us to be with the Father. That's, that's what Jesus has done. It's one of the reasons why he's come, to bring us to the Father, and to show us how to approach the Father and come to the Father for ourselves. And what Jesus is showing us in this prayer, what we're learning in this prayer is this, that when we come to the Father as Jesus has taught us and he has shown us, we are in a position, number one, for the Father to speak to us. He talked about giving them the word. I gave them the word, he said. And the word was from the Father, Jesus was and is the Word. So when we come to the Father, as Jesus brings us to the Father, we receive the Word of the Father, and Jesus is that Word. It's like, come to your Father. It's the opposite of, of hearing the news from your mom. Wait till your Father comes home. He's going to have something to say to you. And you're like, oh boy, you know, that's not good. We're, we're, I'm, in, I'm in a lot of trouble. It was all negative, right? Maybe, maybe not for you, but maybe for some, uh, that's what it meant. When your Father speaks to you, it's because you're in trouble. But get that out of your head. This is, it's the opposite of that. Your father has something to say to you. as has a word for you. It's a word that comes out of his love and his care for you. All right? Jesus said, secondly, when you get brought to the father like this, when I the way I show you, when I bring you to the father, you're going to be protected. You're going to be 
protected because the father protects his children. Now today, in part two, we're going to be looking at two other things that happen when we come to the father, as Jesus has provided. Two things we need to have happen. We need to have happen if we're going to be in the world, but not of the world. That second thing is that those, those two things would be we're going to be sanctified when we're brought to the Father, and we are going to be sent when we are brought to the Father. Now, now, now look at that word sanctified. That, that is uh, a word that you may not use every day in normal language. Now, of course, I'm speaking today in English. I'm a native English speaker. I don't know how to translate uh, the Greek word for sanctification or the verb to be sanctified or to sanctify uh, in Chinese or Farsi or uh, French, but I'm, I'm sure if one of those languages is yours, you will know how to do that. But in English, it's a word that we don't use very often. Jesus prayed this prayer in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. That's four times in two verses. So what does that word mean exactly? What does it mean? What was Jesus praying for when he prayed for me to be sanctified? What was he praying for? He was praying that we would be dedicated unto God in the same way that if you went into that ancient temple and you saw all those things in the temple, the, the table, the, uh, the bowls, the cups, the altar, the, the curtains. I mean, every single thing associated with that holy place was dedicated to God and his purpose. That's what it means to be sanctified. It means to be dedicated to God exclusively to God and his purpose. It means the word anointing, to be anointed. That's what the word sanctified means. It means it means the word devoted, or as I said already, it means to be set apart, not only set apart for God, set apart for his purpose, but also set apart for sacrifice. Uh, this is what this these these ideas and these words are all wrapped up in the one word to sanctify. What Jesus meant by these words, of course, would come from his world. Jesus was Jewish, and Jesus would go to the temple, and the temple was the center for religious life for Jewish people. And that temple was an expression of the will of God so that, the pe that his people could gather with him in a building, a place that he set apart or sanctified for him. Now, before there was a, before there was a, a temple building, there was a tent structure called a tabernacle. It had the same function. Everything in that either temple or tent structure before there was a literal permanent building had and was devoted for God himself and for his purpose, right? Everything, everything in it, and not just the building, the temple, but the mountain that it was built on, that was dedicated to God and sanctified for him. The temple shovel that they used to clean up the ashes after they the sacrifices, the bulls and the goats, and they were put on an altar and they were, they were consumed and burned up uh, uh, as, as, a, as a sacrifice of worship and praise to God. Well, you know, practically speaking, you know, you ended up with ashes from all of, all of that uh, sacrifice. 
and there was an there was actually a dedicated shovel or shovels more than one to scoop up all the ashes and there was a dedicated way to dispose of those ashes right that's the world that Jesus came out of and that's the source of explanation for what does it mean to be dedicated to God and his purpose. Think of the temple and think of the tabernacle before it. Now, you say, well, what are you you saying? What he's saying here is that, and what we learned from that time is that, that, let's just use the shovel, for example, all right? The shovel that they used was just a shovel, right? if, If you saw it in any other place, if you saw it in your neighbor's tent, if you saw it in the store where you bought it, you would say, that's just a shovel. It's just a it, it's, it's just a plain, common shovel. But you put that shovel in the temple, and you dedicate it to the temple, and for the purpose of the sacrifices that are offered to God in worship, that, that shovel that, you, that was just in the store yesterday is now a holy, sanctified shovel because of to whom it is dedicated and its purpose. You see, you see what we're saying there? Yesterday, it was a shovel in my storage tent. I gave it to the temple at the end of the day, and this morning, inside the temple or the tabernacle, it is a holy shovel because of its dedication and unique purpose as unto God. Something became holy because it was set apart for God and his purposes, and it was separated from common use. And this is the definition for sanctify or to sanctify. And this is why Jesus brings us to the Father, to set us apart, to sanctify us, to dedicate us unto God. All right. And this is what it means for us to be holy, to be separated from common use and dedicated unto God and his purposes. And this is this experience of dedication unto God called sanctification, is necessary because God is holy. And it, it, that's, that's his nature to be holy. Uh, holiness is a quality that defines God. It might be hard for us to understand that because we didn't start out as holy people, right? We didn't start out as perfection and holy. But God has always been holy. It's not like he used to be something else and then he became holy. It's not like he used to be not very holy, or kind of a nice person, or kind of a nice God, kind of a good God. Most of the time you could count on him, but every now and then he kind of slipped up a little bit. No, no, God is God from the beginning, and from the beginning for all eternity, he's holy. That's his person and his nature and his character. And when we approach him, he knows that that characteristic of his person would consume us because we are not holy. We are not that dedicated and that character of godliness that God himself would have. But because God loves us and wants us to be near to him, he makes a way for that to happen. He makes a way for us to be sanctified, you and me. So, wow, you know, we can be like God in this. We can come into his presence, the presence of a holy God, and he can make that possible. Anything, as I said, anything set apart to him or his purpose is other just as G, just as God is other. And what Jesus does is he goes farther than saying, okay, uh, you know that shovel that used to be in your storage tent? Well, now that it's in the tabernacle or in the temple, that's now a holy sanctified shovel because it's 
dedicated to God and because of its purpose. What Jesus does is even, he, he takes us even further and he sanctifies or makes holy all things. So my shovel is, my, my shovel is now holy. My, my, you know, my kitchen furniture is now holy. My coffee cup is now holy. You know, he, he takes and makes everything, but, but most significantly, I become holy. I become holy. I, be, I begin to bear the same and carry the same godlike quality because of the sanctifying power, the holy-making power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And what that does is it allows me to walk in community and walk in fellowship with God himself who is holy. And that's a special, unique, great place to be, life-giving, causes us to flourish as God purposed for us to flourish with him. And it's not exclusive. It's not just a special club, but it's to everyone who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. As we become more attached to God, he is holy, and, and he is holy, of course, we become more separated from what is not him. Rejecting the perverted ways of humanity that always end in abuse or manipulation or violence and death and casting off the world that is within us. I like something that Mark Scarlatta says here. The more we become holy in this way, the more we are drawn to him, to God. And the deeper we experience him, we love as he loves and we are drawn to people, not away from people. The more we want to show, the more we want to show mercy and compassion and not judgment, especially to those who are poor, who are oppressed, who are unlike us. And of course, Jesus added, our enemies. This is not done in our own strength, in case you're wondering. Say, well, how, does, how, how can I possibly do that? It's done in the strength and the power of Christ and his spirit within us. And it is done in community. We do it together. We are made holy together as a people as we support one another. So what is God's purpose? If I'm sanctified for God to be dedicated to him and his purpose, what is his purpose? One person has said his purpose is to bring mercy love, compassion, and justice into the world. Or another, another summary statement for God's purpose in the world is to have an otherworldly community in the world that experiences his supernatural power, that grounds itself in his word, that generates a family that nurtures its members, and that understands what it is to do for Christ in the world. That's from Chris Wright. All right, so... so when we are brought near to the Father, when we are brought to the Father, as Jesus prayed, I'm praying for my followers, for my disciples, for, uh, we call them Christians, who are those who are following me in the 21st century, right where you're living right now, if you're following Jesus, Jesus has prayed for us, and he's prayed, so I'm going to bring them to the Father because they're living in the world, and they're not of the world, and Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, I know how hard that can be. I know what that's like. I was there. I did that. And so I'm praying for them, and I'm bringing them to you so that they can receive a word from you, so that they can receive protection from you, so that they can be sanctified and be made holy uh, by you. And lastly, number four, uh, so that they can be sent. Because the sanctification and the set-apartness and the devotion and the anointing and the dedication, all the words that we've used 
are not just for themselves. They themselves, these are, these are not an end in their means. Uh, of, they're not a means to an end. They're, they are a means to an end, is what I'm saying. Because he has done all these things. He's brought us out of the world so that we might be sent into the world, into the world. Jesus wasn't just miraculously born to Mary, growing up in her home with Joseph. It wasn't random. Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent. He was sent to do his father's will. He was sent to seek and to save the lost. He was sent to give his life as a ransom for many. And he was sent to bring us to the father. When Jesus spoke of his own self-awareness of why he was sent, he said these things, quoting actually from the Bible, from the word of God. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He was sent for this reason and to do these things. Jesus consecrated, another word for sanctified, he separated himself and he prepared himself for the sacrifice that his sending would require. Jesus has separated and prepared himself, and that's what we're doing. All that we are engaged in here, to, to receive the word from the Father, to, to be brought to the Father, and to receive a word from the Father, to be protected by the Father, and to be sanctified and made holy by the Father, is so that we might answer the call of the Father and be sent into the world that we have been brought out of. And this is our sacrifice unto him. Of course, Jesus was unique. Uh, but this does not stop him from praying for our experience of being sent. Being close to God, he knows that, that, that in being brought to the Father, those who belong to him must also be available to be sent, to receive authority in the sending, and be prepared to pay the price for having been sent into the world. Only Jesus can say with confidence, however, it is finished, and now I am sending. It is finished, and now I am sending you into the world. We were, as I said earlier, we were in the world, and then God called us out of the world to be sent back into the world. We got called out to be sent in. All right, now, uh, a funny story, a cute story from my years in junior high school. In junior high school, uh, I was introduced to the game Dodgeball. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a movie made quite a few years ago called Dodgeball. Maybe you've played Dodgeball. It's, that, it's a game where uh, uh, you split into two teams, usually two larger teams of 10, 15, 20 people. And, you know, we've got one team on one side of the room, usually a gymnasium, but not necessarily. Uh, there are actually dodgeball courts that you could go to. One team on one side of the room, the other team on the other side of the room. You, you, each team has balls, you know, and you, it's a very simple game. You throw it at the other, you throw it at members of the other team. You throw it at people on the other team. And if you get, and you're trying to strike someone on the other team with your ball and if they are struck, or if you are struck with a ball, you, you're out. You have to go out. And, of course, it's a, an elimination thing, right? You're, you're trying to be the last team member standing is the team that wins. All right? And, and now here's a couple, a couple like, 
provisions for that. If you catch the ball, if someone throws the ball at you to, to, to strike you so that you're out, but you catch it, the person who threw the ball is out. And in my junior high school years, where I was introduced to dodgeball, there was another rule um, where if you, it was to discourage throwing a ball at someone's head. We didn't want you to do that because we want people to get, to get hurt, to seriously hurt if they were hit. So, so to, to, to discourage that, if you were hit in the head by a ball, even though you didn't catch it, the person who threw it was automatically out. And you, the person who was struck in the head with that ball, you got to stay in the game. I remember one time, I don't know why this struck me, and, and I, I, I smiled because I shouldn't laugh, but it was because my friend was okay. All right, just to make that clear. He was someone who was hit in the head with a ball. And, and, and this was back in the early 70s when wireframe glasses were kind of a new thing. And he got hit you know, hard enough that it just, it just mangled up his glasses. His glasses are now kind of crooked on his face. You know, and they're kind of twisted, and he's upset because my mom's going to be so mad at me because my glasses, this is like the third time, you know, this year that my glasses got, they're all bent up, and it's hit him so hard, the little nose piece is kind of dug in its way into the bridge of his nose, and there's little blood coming from it. And he's wobbling off the court, and, you know, he sits down, you know, and, and, uh, and the coach comes up to him and says, good news, John, you can go back in. You know, he, I mean, he's, he's just dizzy, you know, and he's just, you know, there's a little blood trickling from his nose. His glasses are twisted and mangled. He can't hardly see through them. And the coach is telling him, good news, John, you can go back in the game. And John's like, I don't want to go back. I'm out of the game and I, and I don't want to go back in the game, coach. And sometimes we can feel like that. We say, we get this good news that we are out of the world. And God has brought us out of the world and into his kingdom of light and we're filled with light and we're filled with other loving people in our lives who are caring for us and we love the community of faith and the fellowship of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a much more beautiful place than the world that we came out of and I don't want to go back in there. I don't want to go back in there. There's a word for this they used years ago. They called it redemption and lift. Actually, I guess those two words. What can happen is that we are in the world, we are called out of the world, and the longer we are out of the world, the less contact we have with the world, and we are lifted up, but then we don't want to go back. We don't want to go back. We like where we are right now. But we must go. We must go, because the world still needs a Savior. Paul would say it this way, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And that's really just proclaiming or telling the good news about Jesus. Don't think about preachers. There's someone telling them. And how can anyone preach or talk and talk about this message and talk about Jesus and what he stood for and what he said unless they are sent, Paul said. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So we've been sent. Sent to tell about Jesus and his message. Sent to challenge the world to draw out those who love the truth and bring them in to his new community. To, sent to bring the light, to deliver the captive and sight to the blind. 
sent to build communities of faith that will be the hands and the feet of Jesus in every city and village and community where you find this new community of Jesus people. Sent to overcome the world in the power of the Spirit and in confident joy. You know, uh, there's a great story in Genesis chapter, well, second half of Genesis. I think it starts about 37, 38, somewhere on there. But it's a story of Jacob and his sons and Joseph in particular. And, and starting in verse, chapter 45, uh, you, you get to see how often this word sent comes into play. And, and Joseph, if you know this story, you know Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. I mean, that part of the story it reflects what happens in the world. Sold into slavery by your brothers. But Joseph would say much later in life, I, we're not gonna, you've got to go back and read it to get all the details, but because there's some other really tragic and, and incredible things that happened to him. But later in life, after his life took many different twists and turns, some highs, some, some really good stuff, but also some really bad stuff that can happen in the world. Joseph would describe himself as not a victim of the world, but one who has been sent by God into the world. It's a great story. You should go back and read it. Because Joseph's perspective is not the, the, one of being a victim of the world, but one who was sent into the world by God. God sent me, he said to his brothers, when he finally reveals himself, his true identity to his brothers, he said, God sent me into uh, before you. God sent me ahead of you, he said, to care for you. Uh, he would say in another place, it was not you that sent me here, but God that sent me here. And he would say in the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, kind of summarizing the whole story of his life, God has sent me for the saving of many lives. The key to being in the world but not of the world is in following Jesus to the Father. Often, often, every day, come to the Father. Come to the, you belong in the presence of the Father. Come to the Father. That's what, follow Jesus to the Father and receive the word of the Father, receive the protection of the Father, receive the sanctification uh, the, 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 the daily cleansing and being made whole, holy and with an H and holy with a W-H, whole in the presence of the Father and to be sent by the Father. In this prayer, Jesus recommits himself to the mission assigned by his Father, a mission that would call forth from him a sacrifice as it does for you and me. Because of this, because of the experience of Jesus, because of having come to the Father, having received the word of the Father, the protection of the Father, the sanctification of the Father, and the sending of the Father, we know a new holiness, we have a new identity, and we have this deep attachment to the Father ourselves. And remember, as we say this today, I'm not sure we're going to be watching this, uh, but it's being brought to you uh, just about, what, seven weeks or so before the cross, before we remember the cross of Christ. Jesus is praying this prayer on the night before he was crucified. We are sharing this today, remembering that all that Jesus prayed, he prayed in the shadow 
of the cross. And as we hear this word to us today, it is also in the shadow of the cross. We are being prepared for a cross. We are also being prepared for a resurrection. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.